Stories of Communism 37, Strange Zoo. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we discuss what life is really like for those unfortunate enough to live under communist or socialist governments. Recording from the suburbs of Wichita, Kansas, this is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda in Oregon. Apologies for the long gap since the last episode. As you've just heard, I've been relocating with my family halfway across the country, which has taken up a lot of time. Hopefully we'll get back to a more regular schedule soon. Today we're focusing on a very unusual book by Croatian author Slavonia Draculic titled A Guided Tour Through the Museum of Communism, Fables from a Mouse, a Parrot, a Bear, a Cat, a Mole, a Pig, a Dog, and a Raven. From the title, you might expect it to be some kind of absurd satire, but each of the animals in the book is narrating adapted stories based on real events that occurred in Eastern Europe under communist rule, though told from their unique animal point of view. Some of the stories are darkly humorous, all are informative, and a few are quite chilling. Let's look at a few of the stories her animals tell us. The book is introduced by a Czechoslovakian mouse who is said to live in the cabinets of a physical museum. Permit me to say that, from what I have heard from the professor, communism is not so much about exhibits, about seeing. It's more about how one lived in those times, or more to the point, how one survived them. From the lack of food or shoes to the lack of freedom and human rights. The question is, how do you present that kind of shortage, shortages that were not just poverty-induced, to somebody who knows very little about it? Because people who experience life under communism tend not to come here anyway. The mouse recommends we get some perspective from his friend Milena, the elderly cleaning lady who tends to the museum. She provides a key insight into why it's so hard for former residents of these countries to truly confront their past and expose the kind of stories we've been sharing in this podcast. Our young people don't care. For them, communism is the ancient past. Those old enough to remember it want to forget it now. And why? Because they went along with it, as I did, as my husband did, and our neighbors, and everybody we knew, every Pavel and Elena around us, I heard her say. Ten percent of the population were party members, plain and simple. That means 1,700,000 people. I understand that not all of them were believers. They were only formally members because of the job and career and benefits that went with membership. But no regime, however totalitarian, could exist without complicity on the part of the people, however unwilling it might be. I remember Professor Perlick saying, let us not kid ourselves. Most of us complied in order not only to survive, because Czechoslovakia was not the USSR, but just to live better. I admit it's a hard fact to face now. Maybe the absence of individual stories is the best illustration of the fact that individualism was the biggest sin one could commit. This fact, that so many people collaborated with the regime in order to survive, is a common theme under all these systems. Even famous dissident author Milan Kundera is said to have had a black spot in his record. Kundera left Czechoslovakia and went to France after the invasion in 1968 and never returned. After that, he became one of the best-known dissidents from the communist world, next to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Suddenly, the same Kundera is in the middle of a scandal— I heard about it from a couple discussing it very loudly in this room just recently. In fact, they woke me up in the middle of my regular afternoon nap. What happened? In October 2008, a certain historian found a document that's taken as proof that Kundera is not what he seems to be. Not a moral man, but a denouncer, no less. A document from 1950 is there to prove it. It's a police report, a short one. It states that Milan Kundera, at that time a student at the FAMU Film Academy and an ardent member of the Communist Party, reported to the undersigned police inspector that there was a suspicious person staying in his dormitory. Following this, the police arrested Miroslav Dvorsek, a pilot and a spy for the American-supported Czech intelligence agency of that time. 
Dvorak had illegally crossed the border back into Czechoslovakia and was on his way out again. Following Kundera's report, the man was arrested and sentenced to 22 years of hard labor. Dvorak served his sentence mostly in uranium mines. Yet, in his writing and interviews, Kundera never mentioned this episode. You see, true or not, the real problem is that this whole devilish story is believable, convincing. Everybody agrees that it could have happened. It could have been that Kundera saw reporting on Dvorak at his patriotic duty. He was a party member. He himself was in danger of going to prison if he didn't report it. Such were the times. It could have happened to anyone, or so the argument goes. There's a certain malevolent triumph in the fact that the best of us all could have failed. Another of the more memorable chapters is the one narrated by Tosho, the dancing bear. Draculik uses the idea of a Bulgarian peasant trading a bear to dance as a metaphor for the way the Communist Party, inherently a small, weak group of people, managed to control entire populations and force them to do their bidding. After the fall of communism, an animal rights activist named Evelina tries to rehabilitate Tosho, but is confused by the fact that the bear seems to miss his trainer. But then I realized that she was troubled not only by the fact that we had been tortured, but also that we had withstood torture without even a squeak. She could not understand our passiveness. Evelina belongs to a new generation that grew up after the fall of Zhivkov's regime, free from Communist Party ideology. I realized that recently when she asked me, but why didn't you do something? You are so much bigger, so much stronger than the people who held you imprisoned. Yes, why didn't we? I'll tell you why, young lady, because the thought never occurred to us, that's why. That was the secret of both Zhivkov and Angel's rule. Not only was your body captured, but so was your mind. I learned only in hindsight that what keeps one enslaved is one's own captive mind, I told her. And if you're still wondering, was there no one else to stand up for our rights, no one to stop this unbearable torture, like neighbors or the police or other citizens, I tell you no. They all watched us dance and laughed. It amused them to see a huge and dangerous animal reduced to a pitiful clown. It proved their domination. A sad story of how beastly people can be, given the chance. I believed that Angel and I were friends after all those years of living and performing together. This in spite of the fact that he kept me on a chain with a ring through my nose. He convinced me that it was more for the sake of appearance. This is for your own safety, eh? People would go mad if they saw a bear walking free in the street, he used to say reassuringly. They would kill you right away. People are cruel, believe you me. I've seen it many times in my life. As if I did not know that. The needs of the animals and the humans enter a strange sort of conflict as the bear reminisces about Zhivkov's eccentric daughter Ludmilla, who was openly a vegetarian and almost unheard of lifestyle in Bulgaria. At the same time, these reflections apply just as well to the relationship between communist leaders like Ludmilla and the masses of people they claim to be and often even intend to be helping. At first I thought that to be a vegetarian in a country where many people could not afford to eat meat, where such a diet was not a matter of taste or choice, was an extraordinary, enlightened decision. You have to be really high-minded and spiritually oriented. Long after Ludmilla was gone, I understood how easy it had been for her to be a vegetarian. She defended the rights of other living beings, mostly mammals, because animals are like people. They feel pain, they feel fear. Therefore, she appeared more human herself. On the other hand, she did nothing to change their conditions. Her activity in our favor was restricted to just that, not eating meat. I naively imagined how, for example, she could have given the order to ban the capture and torture of wild bears, or for that matter, to let people travel abroad and then decide for themselves what beauty and light and harmony are. This would have required much more from her than grand words. It would have also been more dangerous to deal with human than with animal rights. At the time, human life was seldom perceived in its single form. 
It was usually seen only as a mass, a crowd. There was no real change, there could not be any. In the end, even if her intentions were good, our life went on without change. Freedom, be it for animals or for humans, was not her priority. How could it be? She had little or no contact with real life, with real underdogs and underbears. She simply did not see us as being enslaved. Probably the funniest chapter is the one narrated by a mole who lives in the vicinity of the former site of the Berlin Wall. He was born after the wall fell, but has heard many stories about it from his mole relatives. Given his easy traversal between the two sides, he at first is mystified as to why the humans made such a big deal about it. He views some museum artifacts showing the lengths various residents of East Berlin went through to get across the wall. This collection proves the existence of the wall beyond any doubt. There were huge machines on wheels called trucks, which were used to crush the turnpike at the border crossing in Friedrichstrasse, and a homemade chairlift. A father sent his small son over the walls by using this invention. Unbelievable as it is, I also saw a hot air balloon. Imagine, in Anno Domini 1979, two families escaped by using it to climb 2,600 meters. There was a cable drum that smuggled people, too. I was also most impressed by ordinary cars. It was amazing how a gigantic creature, such as a grown-up male or female man, could squeeze himself or herself into a small trunk and thus become invisible to the border guards. One kind of car was built so low that it actually passed under the horizontal bar at the checkpoint, transporting three people. As he seeks wisdom from his fellow moles, he finally hits upon a reason why the humans are so interested in this crossing. Well, have you never heard of the banana issue? They are a delicacy. You should imagine a banana as an exquisite, extremely succulent, tasty kind of earthworm. Even the mere mentioning of bananas makes men's mouth water, he said. Oh, I do understand that. The mere thought of a special kind of fat earthworm makes my mouth water as well, I exclaimed, happy to have learned something new. In the old days, before the Berlin Wall went down, bananas were a very popular food among men. But in those days, Andreas continued, unlike other popular foods, there was something particular about bananas. While on the west side of the wall, the banana side, so to speak, men did not especially appreciate them, probably because they could indulge in them every day. On the non-banana side, they were literally dying for them. Following up on this discussion, the mole does some research and learns of a popular joke told by humans about the situation. Two Berliner children are speaking to each other over the wall. But let me remark here that this was hardly possible. The wall was much too high. The little boy in the west says, while eating a banana, look, I have a banana. The boy in the east answers, yes, but we have socialism. The boy in the west counters, we too will have socialism soon. But the boy in the east says triumphantly, tough luck then, you won't have bananas anymore. Obviously, you had either bananas or socialism. The two of them didn't grow together. But what was this socialism? Another kind of food, I asked myself. Based on available sources, I soon came to the conclusion that socialism must have been not food, but a kind of pestilence that prevented bananas from growing in the eastern part of the overland. After having pondered a while, I thought that there could only be one answer. The men on the non-banana side built the walls to protect the prisoners and bananas from socialism. They surely demonstrated extraordinary care for the others, a noble characteristic of human beings. Oh, this is an, an amazing story because it tells us that really, in my opinion, uh, the best way to control people is to control their minds. They don't have big enough jails to put everyone, millions and millions in jails. So 
the key is to control their minds. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think you're right. That I mean, one, one thing that's always seemed paradoxical is there are all these millions of people there and this tiny communist elite that somehow gets total control. And um, yeah, I think the, the metaphor of the uh, dancing bear works nicely in this case. <laughs> yes, it does. And, you know, if you look at uh, a lot of stories in Germany and other commun communist or totalitarian places, um, many of the people just claim, too, that they had to do it because they had to survive. And... Yes, I guess you can say that, but um, you can also leave or not participate at all. Yeah, yeah, but it is kind of the, the genius of the system, right, that it sort of enlists people as minor collaborators in order to get sort of the basic privileges of life, like a decent job and things like that, right? And once you make that yeah. first compromise and decide you want to join the party, then, you know, step by step, they can incrementally get you to cooperate more and more. And I think that's what oh, happened yeah. in a lot of cases. As you're speaking, I'm seeing a picture in my mind during this pandemic that we saw here in the United States. And I saw the police showing up to arrest a mother for letting her kid play outside. <laughs> in And she's inside the house. I mean... Uh, at what point, I'm sure this uh, police officers, this is here in the United States, went into this job, at least you would hope, for a good uh, reason, for a good cost, to do good. I don't think they, they thought they would find themselves eventually arresting innocent people. In this case, I mean, we, we this, this, the stories here are all kind of humorous in a way, but in a way they're very real and and sad because I'm not sure what can be done about this. It, it is really a a situation where where people have figured out how to control someone much stronger and bigger, like you said before, much larger numbers with very little. Yeah, well, I, th I think, you know, the, the best way to fight back against it is just with information, right? If people see what this, uh, what's happening out in the open and they know what's going on, right, it's much harder for people to sort of quietly slip down that slope, right? I mean, imagine, oh, yeah. like, look at the story about, you know, um, the author Kundera who turned in some random guy in his college dorm. Right. It, it, as long yeah. as it was quiet and, you know, he received rewards from the government for doing that, but nobody criticized him for it or even knew he did it. Right. It's very easy to continue doing that. But imagine if, you know, everybody had known about it immediately and um, everybody had sort of looked down on him for it. It'd be a lot less likely that things like that would happen. You're absolutely right. And ultimately... Most human beings, they're going to look for what's in their best interest. And they're going to find ways to appease the gods <laughs> and do whatever whatever is necessary to um, be under good graces. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and again, you know, I think the theme we keep coming back to is the more power you put in government, right, the more gods there are to appease, right, and external forces forcing you to act in ways that you don't think are right. Right. And that's one reason why a lot of us try to advocate for more limited government, because it reduces the, the sort of pressure for cases and behaviors like what we've seen here. And defend the, the right of uh, people to express themselves freely. Because yeah. when, that's that, when that is no longer the case, then, you know, people are afraid to say anything. And then people are just listening to whatever propaganda is being sponsored by, by people in power. So what, what did you see um, happening now when we read this story and we share this story? Um, I mean, there are so many similarities of what we see now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can look in a lot of ways, you know, there was this sort of, you know, sudden fear of COVID just, what, a year ago, and it caused probably the biggest rollback of personal freedoms in the history of Western civilization, right? And everybody just sort of stood back and accepted it, um, partly out of fear of COVID itself, and partly out of fear that their neighbors and local government officials would come down on them if they questioned it in any way, right? So I think this is a good lesson for those of us in the in the more uh, democratic nations like the U.S., you know, now that these COVID things are starting to roll back and people are starting to get back to normal life, more or less, we have to sort of take a step back look at what happened and make sure we don't have this kind of hysteria again, right? We don't immediately shut down everything just because, you know, a handful of government officials are afraid or, or are trying to make us afraid. Yes. Ah, that is so, so right about this. Many of the things that, that we hear about in the story are, um, things that happen in communist countries, but they can also happen in, in democracies like ours if we don't pay attention. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what do you think is, is the, um, the best part about the story here? I mean, we discussed some of the, the uh, main points, but um, how do we make this known to the uh, rest of the population that, that you know, this, this type of uh, deprivation of freedoms are, are not something that happened from one day to the next. Although you did mention this pandemic, that was probably the fastest slide of freedom I have seen in <laughs> my entire time here in the U.S., more than 42 years. I never saw our freedom slip so fast. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, right? Because I, I think it varied from country to country. But I, I think, you know, in terms of what we can do here, I think just educating the people is the biggest uh, challenge, right? And one, one thing that I've seen that's kind of encouraging is recently, you know, several state legislatures have actually been talking about or passing laws 
that say, okay, they have to teach about, uh, you know, communism and its consequences and what's happened under those governments as part of high school uh, civics programs, um, sort of as a counterweight to the critical race theory that the, the leftists have introduced, which pretty much advocates communism across the board. So, yeah. You know, unfortunately, I think it's going to be a red state, blue state thing where, you know, the red states are going to educate about, you know, the consequences of communism and the blue states are going to continue to raise their children to advocate it. And uh, it's uh, probably going to be a challenge to keep our country together in the long term with such a divergence of the basic you know, facts of what's taught in the schools. Yes, I I agree with you. I think there's going to be a a very very strong divide between blue states and and red states, and and uh, it's going to be difficult to unite uh, the whole country. Well, uh, this was a a good choice of story, Eric. You're always choosing great stories, <laughs> and let's. Uh, keep them coming so that we can all just sometimes it's not about learning something new, but it's just a reminder, you know, because yeah, we easily yeah. forget, we easily forget these things. Yeah. And, yeah, we do. Yeah. And, and we could say, well, you know, we, we already know this, that this could happen, but we get complacent and do nothing about it unless we're reminded about uh, real things that could happen or that had happened in the past and what the outcome is when when certain actions are taken or not taken. So I think this is, this is uh, incredibly uh, important for all of us to just uh, stay vigil uh, Freedom is not free. We already heard that many times, but we just have to keep reminding ourselves. As you can see, the author's odd choice of narrators enabled her to approach each of the stories from a rather unique perspective. While providing plenty of humor, she succeeds in conveying the ironies, the failures, and in some places even the horrors of communist rule in Eastern Europe throughout the Cold War period. I'm sure if you're interested enough in the topic to be listening to this podcast, You'll thoroughly enjoy Draculic's guided tour. And this has been your story of communism for today. <laughs>